Okay, I trust you found Acts chapter 6, verse 17. Why don't we stand and read together? Instruct those who are rich in this world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoid avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Lord, we are looking forward to the closing of 1 Timothy today, finishing this letter. Um, there's been a bit of a sort of slow start here this morning as we've been trying to get everything sorted out. May all the distractions and maybe any of the nerves and things going on just be put aside now as we focus on your word and we focus on uh, gleaning from the things you want us to know. We uh, are privileged, Lord, in Okotoks, and we are beyond the norm of what the average society faces in terms of wealth. We ask you now to speak to us because this message really applies to us as people who live in this community. So we're looking forward to the things you have to say and we want to be um, open to any instruction you have for us. So shape our hearts, guide our minds. Amen. Well, as you noticed by the reading this morning, we are finishing 1 Timothy today. And I hope that this time in the letter has been as profitable to you as it has been to me. I know I've learned a lot uh, these last few months and been grateful for the rich discussions we've had in places like the dialogue. And uh, most of all, I'm thankful for how we as a church have learned to put a lot of Paul's teachings into practice, especially going on, going on into the future. But we do have one more sermon to go here this morning. And today's subject matter has once again to do with money. Specifically, Paul's instruction to those believers within the church in Ephesus that happened to be well off and were rich. Now before we jump into verse 17, let me remind you of the context again and why Paul felt it was necessary to speak to the Ephesian believers about those who had wealth. Like always, I know I sound like a broken record, but this very much again had to do with the false teachers who were present there. Remember that Paul had just spoken earlier in the earlier verses that uh, these, some of these false elders were in ministry because they believed that godliness was a means of financial gain. We found that in verse 5. So they believed that sort of the, the ministry in the, uh, was a place to basically get wealthy. And so we looked at the sermon a couple of weeks ago where Paul gave correctives to this. And he spoke about the need for believers to be content. And, and what that contentment looked like, and warned about the dangers of money, so that people didn't fall into the same trap as these false teachers. But the reality was, there were wealthy Christians within the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was a wealthy church, uh, so to speak, in the, as the overall average. There were people there that were very wealthy and had a lot extra. They had surpluses beyond the basics of food, shelter, and clothing. And so Paul wanted the rich believers in Ephesus to know this, that in light of the false teachers, 
the mere possession of wealth was not wrong. It wasn't sinful to be rich. And they didn't have to feel guilty and like they were lumped in with the false teachers. As long as one thing was there, they operated within it, with it, with finances, in a way that brought honor to the Lord. There was a way with money they were to operate that brought honor to the Lord. Their false teachers loved money and their hope was fixed on it. And Paul says, no, we're not to be like that as wealthy Christians. So Paul really gives two instructions in this, in this uh, closing um, chapter, these closing words. He has a what not to do list and a what to do list. What not to do and what to do. And so we're going to start with the what not to do list here in verse 17. And he gives some sort of like a, a modus operandi, a means of operating in terms of what not to do for those who possess wealth. So let's look at this in verse 17. There's two things. He says this. Instruct those who are rich in this world, present world, not to be conceited, number one. And number two, put their hope on them the insurgency of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So the first thing he says to the rich, do not be conceited about your wealth. That's the first thing. Why would he say that? Well, the Bible teaches us that generally wealth and pride or arrogance go hand in hand like two peas in a pod. Wealth and pride often go hand in hand. The more wealthy you are, the more prideful you tend to become. That's, the, that's what the Bible teaches. Proverbs 28:11. The rich man is wise in his own eyes, but the poor has understanding and sees right through him. Notice this man in 28, verse 11, has wealth, and it gives him an inflated sense of self. He thinks that he's wise. He thinks he's the bomb. He's the stuff in relation to someone who has less than him. And the problem with this, when you start to think in this way, it's what not only it leads to what you think about, it actually lends itself to how you treat others. People think this, who think this way start to treat others who are less fortunate as inferior. Proverbs 18.23 says this, The poor plead for mercy, but the rich answer harshly. Notice the word harshly there. Well, of course they would answer, answer, answer harshly to people less fortunate because they believe that their wealth gives them some kind of superiority. Some kind of superiority. And the result then is that they have the right to speak to others in a demoted type of way. They can be rude and rough with others. You know, this, is a, this idea of having a superiority complex because you have money was something the Free Methodist Church had to face. It's in our history. When, Methodism, when the Methodist Church came from England and came over to America, it started off really well. It started off great. But over time, things crept in. One of the things that crept in was that um, they started to rent out pews in the church in order to collect tithes. And the people with the money could get the best pews in the church. So the people with wealth would get the front, and the people who were poor sat in the back. <laughs> it's funny how that's not part of our fabric anymore in our, uh, <laughs> in our church. Um, so they'd rent out pews to collect money. And there was, when you sat in certain seats, it was very obvious who was wealthy and who was poor. And it was a statement against the poor people. 
that's one of the many issues that, that the Methodist Church started to encounter. So we're called the Free Methodist Church, the Free Methodist, because when Methodism moved to Canada, we became free from this type of thinking. And we made the churches very plain and made the, the benches open to all. And it didn't matter what you had in terms of status, you could sit anywhere you wanted. So just, I think it's important just to say, hey, like, Paul's instruction here is relevant even to our own context in our history. But this was an issue in the New Testament church as well. And we would, it's sad to see writings like this, but we're grateful to see writings like this because it's clear this is a temptation for all wealthy people. Look at what happened in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. James is the Jesus' brother. He's, written, he's the head of the Jerusalem church. And he writes this. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by the footstool, have you not made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil motives? You have dishonored the poor man. You can see now why Paul says to the rich, do not be conceited about your money. There's a temptation to always have a superiority complex and treat others as less, who are less fortunate as inferior to you because you believe that somehow your wealth gives you status before God. So that's one warning. Number two, a wealthy person is not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Now I love what, I quote him a lot. I'm going to buy his commentaries in the future because I had no idea how good this guy was. William Mounts. Here's how he defines hope, to fix your hope. He says this, when someone fixes their hope on something, it signals a confident anticipation. <laughs> That's good. If you fix your hope on something, you have a confident anticipation in that thing is going to give you a return. Or that thing you believe in is going to produce future gain, or whatever, future security. So for one to fix their hope in this context means that one has a confident anticipation that their wealth will provide future security. That they'll have future assurance that they're going to be okay. This little nest egg will make them, uh, you know, give them everything they want. So the idea is that the more one has, the greater the security will be. But isn't it interesting here that Paul calls riches uncertain? He calls riches uncertain. You know, our past history has sure taught us this, hasn't it? Imagine being part of the Jewish population in 1940, 1945 in that era. And you had amassed a fortune as a Jew through good business practices and inheritances and all sorts of things. And next thing you know, bang, due to hatred of your ethnic identity, you're completely wiped out and everything you own is gone in one day. Everything stripped from you. The transference of wealth from one to another through war. How about natural disasters? You've amassed a fortune and a tsunami rages your city. A tornado comes through. How about the flood that hit Calgary in 2013 in the High River? And then the insurance doesn't come through. 
or they, if they come through just a little bit they don't fulfill their promises and all your, all your hope is in that and it's all gone by a natural disaster how about persecution you've amassed an incredible business or you've amassed a beautiful mansion or you've got tons of boats and, and uh, houses and, and uh, you know, beautiful clothes and jewelry and you know, camper trailers and all sorts of stuff Next thing you know, someone comes in and says, deny Jesus or we take it. The government comes in, wipes it completely out from you. Like the Hebrews 10 people. The Hebrews 10, 34. When um, Paul, uh, probably Paul wrote Hebrews, although we don't know for sure. But there it talks about how their houses were taken from them, but they received that persecution with gladness because of their love for the Lord. But this is not just a past reality. This is a present reality right now. How many people in Okotoks seven months ago who were running a successful small business or had full-time jobs ever thought that in seven months everything would be gone? Seven months, gone. Driving people into depression and even suicide. How about in the days of Ralph Klein and the oil patch? Remember we all got the $400 government check for the surplus we had in Alberta? I sure loved that day. Who would have ever thought the oil patch would be in the position it is today in the days of Ralph Klein? Paul says, the riches, of, uh, riches are uncertain. The past is proven to us and the present is proven to us. And so this is why Paul gives a corrective. He says, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but put it somewhere else. Or should I say, on someone else. Look at verse 17 again. He says, don't put your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. On God. As believers who are wealthy, our hope is to be in the Lord. In other words, it's not for, for us, it's not about the possession of material things. That's not where our hope lies, whether we have a lot or a little. What we care about possessing is that relationship with Jesus Christ. It's our relationship with Him in the, what we put our hope in. This understanding that without Him, we have nothing. And with Him, we have everything. I think of Job as an incredible example of this church. Job was extremely wealthy, and Satan said, Satan actually said to, said to the Lord, you take away his wealth and he will deny you. He took his way as a wealth, but he didn't deny him. And then he went after something even more precious, his health. He says, you let me take his health and he will deny you. And he took away his health and he didn't deny him. Job was an incredible example of whether he was rich or poor, had lots or little, was sick or not sick. He knew that everything, his whole hope was fixed in the Lord. And that was the nature of what he was pursuing, who he was pursuing. And that's where his security was laid up. But it is interesting here, church. I know this is something I, I saw this week for the first time in this letter. Even though Paul says, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, and it's all about a relationship with him, notice how Paul defines God here. Even despite the warnings about riches, look at how he defines them. He says, God is one who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. He richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Remember the audience he's speaking to. 
These are wealthy believers who are just warned not to fix their hope on riches. <laughs> Yet Paul turns around here and says, not only is it not wrong to be rich, God is the source of much of this wealth. It's Him who supplies you with these things to enjoy. And again, we're talking to wealthy here. The rich, he's not talking about the basics now. He's talking about well beyond the basics, the extra, the surplus. God is the source of this stuff. You women um, who are currently studying Ecclesiastes have either, I'm not sure how far along in the letter you, you are, but you're going to come to these verses in chapter 5. Solomon says this, This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find some satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions <laughs> and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from the Lord. This is a gift from God. Wealth is a gift from God. Why is it important, I think, to talk about this aspect that Paul and Solomon bring up? Well, I think too often within the Christian circles, there's, there's this pervasive thinking that you need to be poor to be close to the Lord. That somehow holiness and poverty go together. That somehow you need to be poor in order to, to pursue a path of holiness. But you know what, church, we see throughout the Bible many examples of God providing in abundance to his followers. When Israel took the land of Canaan, what was the land described as? A land flowing with milk and honey. Not dirty water and a little bit of cornstarch. Okay? A land flowing with milk and honey. Deuteronomy describes this land as fruitful crops, homes fully paid for, land full of copper, gold and silver. This is a God richly supplying these people, his followers. How about Abraham in Genesis 13 too? He's described as being rich in livestock and rich in gold and silver. And he's the model of faith in the New Testament. We spoke about Job already, but in chapter 42 at the end of his, the book, he's incredibly blessed by the Lord. His brothers and sisters all bring him gold and, and, different, uh, and different money. And the Lord brings them 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And it says the Lord gave him those things. That's a multi-millionaire in today's standard of living. How about the women in Luke chapter 8 who clearly had money? It, he, he lists the women and says they gave out of their own means to support the Jesus and the disciples in ministry. He, it was them that were primary in supporting the 12 men to go around and do their tasks for the Lord. They were doing kingdom work because of their wealth. Now, I'm not preaching the prosperity gospel here, that it's God's will that all be rich. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this from the text. God is in the business of bringing His followers material things to joy when they fix their hope on Him. He can do that. He will do that. He has done that. So to think that you can't be a Christian and be wealthy and still be full, solely fold out for the Lord is to speak against what the Bible says. Now if you're anything like me, you might be asking this question, because I know I was this week. Well, what about those Christians that don't have extra? And aren't, like, what, what do you do with them? Well, 
Good question. There's a couple different possibilities that I want to subscribe to you. First, we've talked about unforeseen circumstances already. Things that are outside of someone's control. I'll give you, I'll give you a few. Again, if you have experienced a natural disaster and things are wiped out and it takes a long time to recover. If you're persecuted, that is going to be the nature potentially of your situation. Maybe you have an unbelieving spouse or you have a believing spouse who hasn't learned God's way for finances and they're squandering the money and you don't even know about it or you can't stop it because you're in a situation where they're just, they don't care about God and so they're going off and spending all the money and you're left like living in those consequences. But secondly, there could be areas of finances that we just simply haven't surrendered to them. And we're not living in accordance with His ways and we're reaping the fruit of that. See, the Bible is full of financial wisdom. Full of it. And we've gone through it as, as a church uh, in their men's group on a couple different occasions. There's many, many principles of going God's way financially, but let me just share a few of them with you. Followers of God will pay back their debts when they have the means to do so. Followers of God will pay back debts when they have the means to do so. Proverbs 3.27 and Proverbs 11.24 and 25. I was one time doing a Bible study at my house, and it was interesting. Nobody showed up that day, and we had about, you know, seven or eight to come, and no one showed up. Couple, a couple, a few minutes later, a couple stragglers came in, just sort of like, you know, and I was like, okay, good, we're going to have at least two guys. There's a small group, and we were doing Genesis at that time. And I said, well, there's no point in doing Genesis today because with just the two of us, what else do you want to talk about? And the two guys said, let's talk about money. I said, good, let's talk about money. And I was walking through some of the Proverbs, and I came to this one. The godly people will pay back their debts. When that was done, both of them looked at me and said, I have, we both have unpaid debts today. And I go, what are they? One guy had a speeding ticket. And he'd been intentionally holding off and paying it because he didn't want to pay, pay what was due. So he was trying to spite the government, so to speak. The other guy was divorced and going, th and going through a pretty hellish breakup. And he owed his spouse money and out of spite wouldn't pay her the money. So after the Bible study, they both said, we're going to go now and take care of the debts that we owe. <laughs> that was awesome for me. I mean... There were so many principles we could go through and that happened to be one of them. I think the Lord was working that night in these guys' lives. Another one. Followers of God will seek to avoid being business partners with non-Christians. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Followers of God seek to, in the, in the pursuit of money, avoid being business partners with non-Christians because they don't live off of the same principles and how to view finances how about godly people seek to save Proverbs 21 verse 20 when you seek to save you're living within the reality of your means and not spending more and I think the debt rate right now in Canada for household debt is 1.7 or 1.8 dollars for every dollar earned so if someone pulls in $100,000 a year they spend 170000 in that same year that's just incredible staggering numbers in Canada so those of us at Little Bow this summer, when we looked at all just lineup after lineup after lineup of boats coming in the water, the majority of that was on line of credit, according to the Canadian stats. Just crazy. How 
How about honoring the Lord by tithing part of our salary to those who spiritually invest in the, us? 1 Corinthians 9.14 There's much I could say about the area of finances, but I want to give you some examples of why some people may not be experiencing the extra that others are experiencing. But here's the key. Whether one is experiencing a lot or a little, it's irrelevant when one's hope is properly fixed. When it's fixed on God, then how much you have is irrelevant. When it's fixed on finances, it sure matters a lot in terms of your security. Paul was an amazing man who understood this. I want to read Philippians 4.12 to you. Listen to these words carefully because people only pick up on one side of this when I hear this preached, or spoken about, I should say, not preached, but spoken, they only pick up on one aspect of this verse and forget the other. <laughs> but listen to Paul. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and of going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Here's the key. He's saying whether I have lots or little, it's irrelevant. I've learned the secret to my contentment. And he talks later about the Lord being the source of his joy. But listen to this here. You usually hear this preach about Paul living in want and living in need, don't you? He's in jail when he writes this. But listen to these words. I've learned how to live in prosperity. I've learned how to have abundance. We never sort of highlight those verses, but he says, I've had a ton in my time at certain points. But he's in jail now. He's been persecuted, so he's not, he has not access to it. But again, this is important. He lived in both he lived in both situations, rich and poor, but it was irrelevant because his hope was fully fixed on the Lord and the eternity he was going to receive. So we learn what not to do. So what are we to do with finances when we're rich and wealthy? Verse 18. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. He kind of lists, lists three things. He wants us to do good, to be rich in good works, and be generous and ready to share. I don't know exactly what Paul has in mind here when he says to do good and to be rich in good works, as if they're separate things, or if it's, it's the same way of saying the, the same thing twice. He doesn't really spell it out. And if you have some thoughts, I'm happy to hear them in dialogue. But I would suggest this based on the context. The whole context is about money. The whole context is about cash and finances. I'm going to suggest that probably what Paul has in mind in terms of the good works and being, in, and, uh, being rich in good works has to do in the category of finances still. And Paul, already, Paul has already given as, as instruction and in, in how to do good works and to be rich in them in the area of finances throughout the letter. Let me remind you of three places he's already told them to handle money well, to do good works. Number one, 1 Timothy 5.3, the widows. The widows. They were to provide, the church was to provide for destitute people. Those who are truly in need, who exemplified a godly character. And we looked at that. So you're to provide for widows and people who are of that nature, destitute in the church. Fellow believers who are in need. Number two, he talked in 1 Timothy 5.8 of men providing for their own households. Especially their own family. So he spoke about the need for the male to take care of his own family and provide for his own family. Finally, we look at 1 Timothy 5.17. He says, though you're to provide for the elders who rule well, and especially those who preach and teach the word of God. So you are to 
compensate financially those who spiritually took leadership of the church. Those are the three areas that Timothy has addressed in these ways. I believe if you were to do those things, that he would say to the rich, you have done well in being, in being rich in good works. But the one area that he focuses on here that I want to spend some time on is generosity. He says, Rich, I want you to be generous and ready to share. Now why generosity? Why is generosity so important? When one is willing to freely give and to depart from their nest egg, I think, well not think, this is a clear, this is a clear indicator of where, where one hope really lies. It's a clear indicator as a Christian if you are willing to freely give and use your resources for others and for God. Because it really demonstrates where your hope lies. Generosity shows where you, that you love God for who He truly is and not for what He has or what He's promised to bring you. And here's the thing, church. When people who are wealthy are generous towards God and others, they can do real big things for the kingdom. Real big things. Can I give you some examples from the New Testament of rich people who did amazing things for the kingdom of God? Lydia in Acts chapter 16. She's from Philippi. She owns a business. She's a seller, seller of purple cloth. If you do any research on purple cloth, it's, it's, a, it's a high priced commodity. She becomes a Christian. She opens up her home to Paul and all of his traveling companions to stay. And the church starts there. And the Philippian church that we see, the church that he loves probably the most in all of the scriptures in terms of his affection for them, started in Lydia's home. Levi in Luke 5. He's a tax collector. He calls to, he's called to be a disciple. He opens up his home, throws a great banquet with many, many guests, and opens it up for Jesus to do evangelism to his friends who need the Lord. What's important about that in that verse, this is off topic, well, not off topic, off my nose. Jesus said to him, Levi left everything to follow him. He left everything to follow him. Next verse, he had a big banquet in his house. But I thought he left everything. <laughs> he threw a big banquet in his house. Important verse to observe. He, he didn't fix his hope anymore in this. And he used his resources to honor the Lord. He wasn't tied to money anymore. How about Mary in John chapter 12? She t she, Mary, Lazarus, and Martha had a big home. They had to have. They were constantly had the 12 staying there plus other people. That's a big house. And we know that they had to have wealth because Mary took a bottle of perfume and anointed Jesus worth 300 denarii. That one denarii in that context is one day's wages. That's 300. So if you, if you say 365 days a year, that's 300 days. That's about how much we work in a year, 300 out of 365. Actually, we, we work a little bit less because we get three to four weeks holidays, but 300 days of the era is one year's wages. That's like us taking one year of our salary just in a bottle of perfume and, pour, and just to, to anoint Jesus with. This is huge money, church. 
How about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus in John 19? Joseph of Arimathea has a tomb cut out of rock. Tomb cut out of rock. I mean, in those days, that's, that's an incredible type of tomb to own. This is not digging a hole in the ground and putting stones on top. This is hewn out of rock. Only wealthy, wealthy people own things like that. And Nicodemus took a hundred pounds of spices to bury Jesus, to give him a royal burial. Leon Morris in his commentary said that's about $150,000 in today's standards, just in spices. <laughs> We're dealing with wealthy, wealthy people whose hearts aren't fixed on, the, on their money and they're using it for incredible things to advance God's kingdom and to do wonderful things for Christ. And I'll be honest, it's because of the wealth in Genesis House that we're doing very well in the area of finances. It's been a huge blessing to us. Two men started church planting at the exact same time as me. Or actually one was before me and one was at the same time as me. We're the only church plant, I'm the only person still in ministry seven years later. And when you ask them why, do you know what their answer is? We weren't taken care of, both men. That's the answer. Both weren't taken care of. The new norm in the Free Methodist Church is bivocational pastors. The majority of people are in bivocational ministry doing two jobs. Do you know why? It's not because they want to, it's because they have to, because they're not being provided for. Man, when people who have resources step up, they can do incredible things for the kingdom of God. And it's a real blessing. It's a real blessing. And I stand here as one grateful for the giving in this church because it allowed me to, to do what so many other men have not been able to do. I don't take it for granted, not one bit. Because it can just as easily <laughs> go that way too. But Paul ends here in verse 19, talking about the rewards that come from being generous. Look at verse 19 with me. When one is generous and ready to share, they will store up for themselves treasures of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Paul's saying here that there's an, there's eternal value. There's a, an eternal value to the way we operate with finances here and now. And when you seek to operate God's way financially, by the ways we just previously looked at, the, the examples we've given, you store up treasures in glory. Now this is really important for me when I was preparing for this, as a, like just dealing with myself and where I'm at with money with, between me and God. I don't know about you, but when God says, I want you to be generous towards Him and towards others, Sometimes, not all the time, but there's sometimes a little voice pops in my head saying, Andrew, don't do it. You need to be careful here because you're going to suffer loss. Little voice once in a while, nagging voices. Just be careful here because you're going to suffer loss if you're generous with your resources. But Gordon Fee puts it this way in this verse. He says, for the rich to give riches away is not to suffer loss, but to gain a treasure of a different kind. It's a treasure of good foundation for the future stored up in glory. This is ultimately, as follower of Jesus, what we're pursuing. The treasure that's of the eternal kind. 
the rewards we'll get from the Lord when he says, I watched how you handled the money that I gave you. And man, well done, faithful steward. Well done. Timothy ends the letter by saying this. Oh, Timothy, God has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, of which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Timothy, you're to guard what's been entrusted to you. You're to guard it. Like a soldier standing at the gate of a castle or whatever. You guard this. May we at Genesis House guard the truths that we've learned in these uh, six chapters over the last year. I think we started in January going through Timothy. And maybe we call it faithful with the things that we've learned. So lessons. Number one, one can be rich and a follower of Jesus Christ. Michael, yeah, duh, Andrew, I knew that. Not everybody thinks that way, church. Not everybody thinks that way. There are people that think that you have to be poor to be close to God. You know, that's the path of the monk kind of thing. And that there's something unholy about you if you have money. And you should be looked down upon if you're... That's not the case at all. Not the case at all. Many, many wealthy people in the scriptures were sold out for God. And loved Him dearly. And fixed their hope totally on Him. Lots of people. Number two. Not only is, not, is it not wrong to possess wealth as a Christian, God's often the source of it. Ecclesiastes, I mean, Solomon said, this is a gift from God. My wealth and possession, this is a gift from the Lord. Um, he says here that when you fix your hope on God, he defines them this way. He's one who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. The context is rich. He's talking about extra, beyond food, clothing, and shelter. Remember, he said earlier um, in verse 8, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. So the basics of life is all that needs to be content. Fair enough. But if God supplies us with extra, then great. Great. But we don't define our relationship by that. Our hope is still fixed on Him solely for the relationship. But God still can do those things. Israel, Job, Abraham, all the people I list in the New Testament, and many of you in this church all can attest to this. Number three. When a believer is wealthy due to God's blessing, they are to place no value in riches. Alright? So when, you, when God decides to give you wealth, don't place any value in it. That's not where the value comes from. It's all about the relationship with Him. The idea that if you do not have the Lord, you have no, nothing. The amount is irrelevant. And that's Paul in Philippians 4.12. I have learned to live in plenty and in abundance. I've also learned to live with basically nothing and in want. But I know the secret to basically contentment. And I know the secret, and that is my relationship with Jesus Christ. The next lesson is very similar. I was wrestling back and forth whether to combine the two or split the two or, you know, anyway. So, but I thought I'll just put them both up there because uh, they might be worth they have separate nuances. Because, of, because rich people are prone to being arrogant and fixing their hope on the insecurity of riches, 
Wealthy believers are to fight this temptation by fixing their hope on God and practicing generosity. Okay? Here's what you're not to do. You're not, rich people, you're not to be arrogant, not to fix your hope on security or wealth. The corrective, instead, fix your hope on God and be generous with your resources. That's the, that's the, that's the nuts and bolts of the whole sermon. That's the difference between a rich wrong ruler and someone like Nicodemus. The rich wrong ruler, when he came to him, he had a superiority complex and he had a hope fixed on riches. And so that's why Jesus said to him, you gotta get rid of this stuff because I know where your heart is on this issue. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, from we don't have any, or Mary, there was no written record of this conversation between Jesus and them. Why not? Because these guys had, had, had were practicing the very things that God wanted and he knew where their heart was towards him. Alright. Lesson 5. If a believer is not experiencing God's extra, it may be due to A. Unforeseen circumstances, experiencing famine, natural disasters, a spouse that won't go God's way with money even though you're willing to. The government <laughs> steps in and in seven months completely it turns your whole world upside down. Things like that. Or it could be not a total surrender of all areas of finance over to him. There might be, you know, I'm just theoretically throwing out there maybe like ten things the Lord asks us to do with money and we've chosen three but neglected seven. You know, things like that. There, there can be some things we choose to do and, 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 and uh, whatnot can have devastating effects. I'm one, I'm one to talk. I've told you about how much debt I was in when I married Janice. I was a Christian when I married Janice. I was a genuine follower of the Lord in extreme financial uh, danger. Why? Because I'd chosen to understand what forgiveness was, but didn't understand that he had a way for me to live financially under that, that provision of forgiveness. I had to be discipled and learn how to go God's way with money. And then life turned around in that area. I was forgiven, but I was, there was consequences in the terms of how I had to practically get out of the debt that I was in. And so again, I speak as one who knows this in reality in my own life. And finally, there is external value to the way a believer operates with money here and now. So the way you deal with money here and now, in this lifetime, brings eternal reward in the next lifetime. However God determines that. I don't know how He determines that. That's up to Him. But He will, when we get to glory, He will say, He will talk to us somehow about our money and say, here's the eternal rewards, the foundation that you've laid, and, and He'll make it appropriate. And I don't know how he does that, what that looks like, but there's eternal value to the way we, a believer operates, and that's how we secure a foundation. That's all I have for this morning, and that concludes the letter to Timothy. But I'm wondering if uh, the Lord has got some things in your mind that he wants you to share, and things that are percolating because of the message this morning. So I'd love to hear your thoughts, and uh, have a great time of finishing this letter with a rich discussion.